It's a pleasure to have singer-songwriter John Mark McMillan here with us on The Antidote. Thanks for coming for a talk, John Mark. Yeah, thank you for having me. You're on a long music journey because you began back in 2002. How does your music compare between then and now? Oh, man, how does it? I haven't thought about that in a long time. I usually don't spend a whole lot of time looking back and thinking about the difference in what I'm doing. I'm not so intentional. I just sort of sit down and whatever is exciting to me at the time is what we try and capture on the tape. So, man, what would be the big differences now and back then? I think I was listening to a lot more guitar music back then. So uh, things were a lot more guitar driven. I think I wanted to have a heavier sound, which is funny because my early records, especially the Hope Anthology, which most people have never heard, um, is not what you'd call a heavy record, you know. I learned very quickly, like, there is a voice that fits that genre, you know. And so I realized, like, I don't have a high voice. Like, I have a low voice. Like, and so you can't just put massive guitars and drums, you know, on top of a low voice and expect it to cut through. And so I think I wrote a lot of songs that were out of my range back then. So I'd lose my voice a lot. I feel like I've become a better singer over the years. I think I'm more confident now in my craft as back then it was still such a mystery. You know, I thought I was going to have to do a rain dance to get something special to happen um, in a song, you know, and now I realized, Oh, it's, it's just work. Like the goods are in me the whole time. I just have to do the work to, to get it out, you know? So I think you hear a lot more insecurity on those early records. You know, I feel like I'm a lot more comfortable now. I feel like you can hear that on the records. Well, something that you are well known for is worship. Listeners to The Antidote have heard me talk about the issues that I have with worship music, you know, about whether it's relevant, if it's meaningful, and whether it's intelligent. I'm mm-hmm. really interested to know if you feel that art has a place in worship music. Well, I I actually think that good art is worship. You know, when we talk about sort of Christian worship, in a lot of ways, I think what we're talking about is more of a, um, a cultural or tribal idea. You know, here's what I mean. What is worship when you break it down? You know, because it's really funny. A lot of people talk a lot about worship. You say, what is it? It's kind of ambiguous, especially some of the people who feel the strongest about worship and what it should be. I think we often have a difficult time even um, defining what the term means. In the English, the word worship comes from this idea of worth or value. In the English language, the word ship always means like a um, vehicle within which something rests or is carried. So like internship is the vehicle within which you're an intern, right? So worship, the word comes from a little worth and ship. It's the vehicle within which we establish worth. And art does the same thing. Art establishes and defines worth. If you look at um, Paris, France, why is Paris such an important city? It's because of the history of the art in that city. I mean, it's a billion dollar industry, tourism in France, especially in Paris, and it's because of the art. I mean, there's other history, but there's a lot of historical places in Europe. 
almost none of them rival Paris. I mean, maybe there's Rome, but similar kind of thing. You know, art establishes worth in a lot of ways. Um, and so worship is not different. What people mean is when they think about the Christian worship, they think about a little bit of a utility, you know, and there is a difference between art and advertising. And I mean, you get super meta and there is an art to advertising and you could use advertising as an art. I mean, you could just get real deep down the rabbit hole there, but, you know, you could separate if you wanted to into categories like a song written for a commercial selling Coke or selling chocolate or selling jewelry at a store at the mall, you know, that song could be art, but it's mostly not. It's mostly an advertisement, you know, and then you have a song that's written just out of the overflow of who you are, the way you see the world, what's important to you as a person, what's important to you about the way the world is, what's important to you about God, what's important to you about people, you know, that would be art. And so in church, for some reason, people tend to want to lean on the more advertising side where like they want quote worship music to be an ad for Jesus. Like we're selling Jesus. So when you say, can worship be art, can art be worship? It has to be. It's not whether or not it can be. It's for it to be pure and true. Like it has to be art. It has to be more art than propaganda. It has to be more art than an advertisement, you know, but I think, People tend to feel like the music we make has got to hold some sort of obvious utility or it's not valid in the church, which I think is a a travesty. I hope you don't mind about this, but I opened up this interview to questions from people who followed the antidote and what they want to know about you and your music. Yeah, yeah. A lot of your fame has come from the worship song, Howie Loves. Sure. Andrew was curious to know how the song resonates for you today, or if its meaning has evolved over the years. That song for me is, I don't want to say this in a way that puts the song down, because I think the song is great, but, you know, it's great in a 15-year-old way. (laughs) Like, man, I really have a lot of respect for that song, but when I hear it, it sounds like music I was making 20 years ago, you know? And the song for me is not in any way a bad song of all the music I wrote back then. I don't consider it to be lesser than any of that. But I think a lot of people love that song. It means a lot to them, which I think is, is so great. But to me, it's a song I wrote 20 years ago, you know? And so it's hard for me to hear that song and not feel like I'm flipping through baby pictures, you know, (laughs) like that was me and it was me and it was great at the time. And, Obviously, there are 20, 30, 40, 50-year-old songs that I still love from other artists, you know. So for me, like, it's hard to sing the song and not feel like I'm reliving the past, you know. But there's nothing wrong with that either. So I I think the song is a great song. um, And I think it was great in its era. You know, in a sense, a song doesn't belong to you once you record it. It belongs to the listener. And it becomes what they need it to be. What it meant for me almost doesn't matter as much anymore because I sort of handed the song off and it belongs to them. So when we sing it, that's the way I think of it. I don't really feel like it's my song. You know, I'm singing their song with them. And I think that's totally great. Well, I think some of those people might have struggled with one part of the song. (laughs) So heaven meets earth like a sloppy wet kiss. 
Because yeah. I've heard versions where that's been changed to Unforeseen Kiss sure. or Lacey Sturm of Flyleaf switching it to Passionate Kiss. So are people actually offended by a sloppy wet kiss? <laughs> I don't know. I really don't know. Like, the song was such a heavy song when I wrote it. Uh, my friend had just passed away, and the song is about him sort of moving from one realm of existence to another. All of a sudden, I'm unaware of these afflictions eclipsed by glory. You know, it's literally his passing from one life to the next. Mm-hmm. And I think most people don't get that. The song is about loss. And so it's like it was so heavy. I needed a light moment, especially when we sang it at home, because everyone was close to the person. Everyone knew what the song was about. I used to do songs before they were finished, and there was always a hole right there. And when I got there, I was seeing different things. One time I was playing it live, and that line came. I was like, this is perfect because it's a heavy song, but it needs a light moment. And this was the light moment for me. And what's so funny is, like, for everyone else, it was, like, the other way around. Like, the song to them is so light, and then there's, like, this weird moment. It's like, you're just overthinking it. I always thought it, like, Bugs Bunny kissing Elmer Fudd, you know, surprise. (laughs) You know, people are like, oh. Teenagers are going to think about sex during that song. It's like, well, number one, no, they're not. And number two, there already are. So to me, there was never anything sexual to that line whatsoever. It was a funny kind of silly line to lighten the mood. So I just think it's funny when people change the line. But I also think it's an interesting case study about what people will allow themselves to sing in church. Like, and this has always really interested me. You go to a lot of churches, and let's just say you you don't know Christianity, you have no context whatsoever, and you walk into the church, right, and they sing Sloppy Wet Kiss, but they're standing under a crucifix with a human body, mostly if not completely naked, with blood and thorns on his head and blood running down his face. I think you would not notice the Sloppy Wet Kiss line at all. I think, why are these people standing under a dead body? You know, like, I I think we're just totally unaware all the sort of cultural things that we don't think about, you know, and when you change up something that is a little bit off center from established culture, people can't handle it. It's just so interesting to me why people uh, get so up in arms about that line. But there are so many more viscerally gross things, if you want to, like, just break it down that we allow And I'm not against this. I'm just saying, think about it from an outsider's perspective, you know, washed in the blood. Like, what's more disgusting if you want to break it down? A sloppy wet kiss or being covered in somebody's blood, you know? And so I just think Christians may just lack a little bit of (laughs) self-awareness, you know, if they think that a sloppy wet kiss is weird or gross. But they totally ignore all the other symbolisms that we're just totally comfortable with. I just think it's hilarious. Well, let's go on to something else that might be more hilarious. Sure. <laughs> you already brought up Elmer Fudd and Bugs Bunny. Who mm-hmm. do you identify with? <laughs> <laughs> sometimes I'm Elmer Fudd and sometimes I'm Bugs Bunny. <laughs> sometimes I'm Elmer Fudd. Sometimes I'm super unaware and I am trying to achieve the impossible. And I am thwarted constantly. Uh, and sometimes I'm Bugs Bunny. I'm uh, happy-go-lucky, and uh, I can't fail, and I feel like life and God are on my side, you know. After writing that song, How He Loves, 
were fans expecting a duplication of that from you on future albums? Maybe they were. I honestly didn't think so much about it, to be honest. I was just sort of doing what I did. Because when Howie Loves got popular, it was already an older song for me. I wrote it in the early 2000s. And I originally put it out on Song Inside the Sound, which came out in, I want to say, 05. Um, and then I recorded The Medicine and put The Medicine out in 2008. And it didn't have Howie Loves on it. Um, when Integrity picked it up, they wanted to add some stuff, and they really wanted me to add How He Loves the Medicine. And at first, I was adamantly against it. But after I thought about it for a while, I was like, you know, this is sort of a people's way in. you know. But for me, it was like How He Loves was the gateway into the rest of the conversation, the conversation I really wanted to have with the Medicine record. Um, and so, once again, it wasn't like I was disrespecting the song. It just, in my mind, it didn't fit with the era of music that we were making at the time. And so for me, it was more like, I was just more excited about the other stuff that we were doing. I wasn't trying to repeat a five-year-old song. And I think that the record company really wanted me to do that. And then they wanted me to co-write with a bunch of people and do that, but it just wasn't in me to do it. And I wrote that song by accident the first time. I didn't sit down and try to write that song. It just came naturally. I just had made up my mind, like, if another song like that happens naturally, then I'll be happy to record it, you know, but I'm in no way, shape or form trying to reproduce that moment. Something that you are reproducing is the medicine, because <laughs> yeah. you've just pulled out the 10th anniversary deluxe edition. Yep. Interesting. It has alternate and remastered songs from the original release. So the original release found a lot of critical success. What was it that made people so passionate about the medicine? Well, I'm not sure. I think we were, at the time, the sounds we were pursuing, we didn't realize it, but the sounds we were pursuing at the time, I think, were really current. And by the time we released the record, there was, you know, My Morning Jacket and Band of Horses, and a lot of these type of Southern bands were uh, exploding. And... We sort of fit that vein. But also, um, I don't really know. I think it was just a timing thing. For me, I think it was, it was the first record where I felt like, okay, I'm an artist. Like, I can do this. It's before, I was still trying to find a voice. And I feel like The Medicine was the first time that I had found a voice that was my own. That didn't sound like a reproduction of someone else's voice. You know? And so that's what I'd like to think it was. It's just sort of my moment where I started to establish who I was, even though there's still a little bit of insecurity and struggling uh, on that record. It's, but to me, it was, I, I listen to it now, and I actually enjoy even those parts, you know, where I hear myself striving for something. It's exciting to listen to those moments and realize how hard we were trying to make something that we thought was important. I had someone else ask about a song from your Borderland release, and Janice said she wanted to hear more about the song Tongue of Fire. She asked about the line, they're going to smoke you out, they're going to find you out. You have to find your way out of the woods. And she was wondering what was happening in your life when you wrote that song. Totally. Oh, man, I love that song, and I love those lines. Um, yeah, the whole idea they're going to smoke you out, they're going to find you out. There's this temptation 
I think it's just a human temptation to become a caricature, to conform to who you need to be to succeed with different groups of people. And there's a point for me where that just gets really old. And I just, I think I realized that like, I've got to be okay with who I am as a person. I need to try to become the best person I can be. But I think that there was all this pressure to be something. And that was the moment where I was like, you know, I could try to be who people want me to be, but in the end, they're going to find me out. You know, in the end, I'm not going to be able to pull it off. I'm like, I'm much better off being okay with who I am than trying to be someone that I'm not. So that's kind of the idea. And that era for me, I was going through a difficult time and I was trying to go back. I felt like I'd left something important behind. Later on, I realized I was looking back to a time when I was also super insecure. And I realized, oh, it's just been this way the whole time. We just glorify these different eras. But at the time, I was, I was like, what did I lose? Did I miss something? Have I lost something? And so, you know, Nights We Spoke with Tongues of Fire, the whole idea of that song is about trying to go back and find something you lost or left behind and realizing that um, you didn't leave anything behind, you know. That same point was also raised by Beth, who had a pretty thoughtful question about the song Mercury and Lightning. Uh-huh. The song says, I need a true religion or I need a new lie. Yeah, she yeah. mentioned to me that she's someone who has had to unlearn a lot of set beliefs and wonders if that situation has been the same with you. Um, yeah, I think so. To me, it's not even about unlearning. I think it's more about holding things loosely. I think it's a maturity thing, you know, like when you're young, you need more established lines. Um, it's funny because when you're young, it's sort of, that's the time you don't want to be structured, you know, and you say, I'll be structured when I get older. But I actually feel like you need a little more structure when you're young and less when you're older <laughs> because it's almost like, a, you know, if you break a bone or something, you need something to set it right. But then at the end of the day, the goal is not to live with the crutch. The goal is that the crutch helps you grow, and then you toss the crutch away. I'm in no way, shape, or form calling Christianity or the Bible a crutch, but I do think people use it as a crutch. And the whole point is that the law is meant to teach us how to live, but the law doesn't live for us. you know. And same with our sort of Christian spirituality. It's sort of like it trains us how to be a healthy person and how to be a healthy believer, but it doesn't live for us. And so like when I was younger, there's things I held tighter than I do now. But I also think it was flip-flopped. When I was younger, I felt like the point to spirituality, to Christianity was all about what I thought and all these sort of ethereal ideas and things. Now that I'm older, I realize, no, the point is how it shapes me as a person. Mm -hmm. You know, the Jesus disciplines are not simply context for living it's sort of the other way around but we avoid that because they're the hard ones because that's where the rubber meets the road and we love dancing around with theology you know but theology that doesn't play out in your physical self is worthless your religion is worthless that's what um james says your worship is worthless if it doesn't play out in real life you know and so i think that's what i'm getting at at that song is like it's nothing wrong with religion. There's nothing wrong with worship. But real worship is when all those things that we sit around and theologize about manifest in your physical self. 
And who is it who says that theology is like parasailing? It's exciting and it's impressive. Um, <laughs> but at the end of the day, it's not going to save you. You know, <laughs> you can theologize all you want as long as you realize that the theology itself, unless it presents itself in your physical form, doesn't matter. I never would have thought about using parasailing as an analogy. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, I do get the idea of chasing mercury and lightning rather than something of substance. But people so often seem to try to find what's easy, even if it is inaccessible. Totally. But this has also left me wondering about yourself. Yeah, yeah. What is John chasing in his career? I mean, I'm chasing all the same things everyone else is chasing. Um, I think, though, I want to do it in a healthy way. I think I do it for different reasons. When I was younger, I thought that the world needed my music like it was a mission, you know? And now I'm sort of realizing, like, and this may seem antithetical to what a lot of people believe, but I've realized God doesn't need me to do his work, but God likes me a lot. And because God likes me, he's going to let me work alongside him, you know? But man, leaders wrestle with this self importance like they're needed in certain ways, you know? But things changed for me when I realized, okay, like, God's doing the work. Like, I'm just the sidekick. Like, I'm just here for fun. I'm just here to be a part of it. And I'm, you know, it's just a privilege to be a part of whatever God wants to do in the world. You know, and so for me, all of a sudden, the music has become more of a reflection of what God is already doing reflection of what's going on with me and it's an invitation for other people to step into a conversation but it's not a mission anymore you know i think honestly the mission now is to try and change me when i was younger i wanted to change everyone else and now i realize like i would be doing good if i can change me (laughs) well that is something that changes in your music is the styles that you bring in because sometimes it is the straight up worship other times it's a touch of country or folk or Americana, or the indie rock found on the song Wilderlove. Uh-huh. Have you ever had one particular genre that's really grabbed you? Um, I love so many different genres of music. Early on, I felt like I had to stay in a certain lane. But as I've grown as an artist, I've realized that as long as you can move people, the lane doesn't matter. Um, there are certain things, you know, if you want to be on the radio, especially Christian radio, you're going to have to do things a very specific way. And for the most part, I've opted for a different path. And being an independent artist, I don't have to subscribe to a specific genre. I think more than anything, I just want it to feel honest, you know, so I'm a huge reggae fan. Like I love reggae. I'm not sure yet that I could do a reggae song where people would feel like, oh, that's John Mark. And, you know, I think they would feel like, oh, that's John Mark trying to do reggae. But those influences do creep into the writing and you can hear them on different songs like Reckoning Day or like Mercury and Lightning. There's definitely a little bit of a Caribbean influence. Um, But so I don't know. It's never a specific genre for me. It's more about what gets me excited about what we're doing? What makes it worth my time to go to the studio and, and create something? And a lot of times, honestly, I get really bored. Um, Gabe Wilson, who produced Mercury Lightning, used to say, whenever I feel like 
we're not headed on the right path. He's like, I think of the most uncool thing we could possibly do. And he does it as a joke. And he, he had to stop because so many times I would love it and make it the thing just because it's interesting. Like Roto Toms. And um, I was like, what's no one use? My producer at the time, Elijah's like, no one uses Roto Toms and no one uses a DX7. And I was like, well, let's go to the pawn shop and get some Roto Toms and a DX7. <laughs> And now everybody uses a DX7, and they don't do it because I did. But it's just sort of the way that thing works. Something becomes so uncool, once it falls out with the last group of uncool people, it's sort of like fair game to go back on the front end of the trend wheel. It becomes cool again. (laughs) Every single thing becomes cool again, yes. Well, as we're talking, you're out on a headlining tour with Mike Maines and the Branches and Tyson Motzenbacher. Yes. That's an interesting mix of music styles for a tour. I mean, I guess one thing you do all have in common is intelligent songwriting. But that has left me wondering about what kind of demographic you're drawing in for the shows. Totally. A lot of young people, you know, and what's really, I've been really kind of blown away at how young our demographic has grown in the past years because I'm almost 40. And I feel like I look out and everyone in the crowd is younger than me. And uh, so that's exciting. It's a variety. I mean, you know, I see parents there with their kids now. I see people in their 60s sometimes. But I feel like the larger audience is um, college-aged people in their 20s, you know. Uh, It's really interesting to me that we're reaching that age group. I would have thought we are reaching a little bit older group, but... It's been a lot of fun. I am a little disappointed about this tour, though, because there's no Canadian dates. So, I mean, Mm. you just don't like Canada. (laughs) (laughs) No, I love Canada. We have played Canada several times. Um, I don't tour as much as I used to, so it's really hard to get to everywhere we want to go in a year now. We're only 20 dates on this tour, so we're not even hitting the West Coast or you know, there's a lot of places we're not playing this year. So I hate it that we haven't been back to Canada in a while. I really want to do a Canadian tour. So hopefully, cross your fingers, maybe this summer. We'd be happy to have you. <laughs> I want to put you on the spot, John. You've created a lot of music since 2002. So how would you describe your music legacy? Oh, gosh, my music legacy. Man, I've never thought of that before. Most of the time, I'm looking towards the future, you know. So I haven't thought much about the fact that we have so many records. I'm I'm excited about the record we're going to start when I get back from this tour. You know, that's probably what I'm thinking about the most. And uh, what about that future album? What can you say about it? Um, I, I built a studio in my basement. So me and a couple of buddies have been creating some new stuff. I'm asking a lot of what if questions, you know. There's a lot of things about God that people want to say are absolutes, you know, but there's not many of those things, you know. There's still a lot of things that may be what ifs. What if God feels the pain of every single human being who ever lived, you know? I think that's true. I don't know it, but it could be true. And so I'm writing some songs about a lot of what ifs, like, you know, what if God was like this? What if God was like that? You know, so... I'm really interested in some of those types of conversations. So we'll see where it goes from there. I'm calling it an existential pop record. <laughs> but who knows? I love that idea. 
What I also loved, John Mark, was this talk. Oh, well, thank you so much. Thanks for coming on The Antidote. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much for your interest. And um, for real, I, I would love to come see you guys in Canada sometime really soon.